Tom Power, and this is Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for streaming or downloading or however you're getting this. This is our last episode of the final season of Toy Heart. Before we get going, I just want to say if you're new to the podcast, the entire season is available up wherever you get your podcasts, including conversations with folks like Del McCurry and Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Ricky Skaggs, Alice Gerard, Tony Trishka. More information on season two coming very, very shortly. But I got to say, I'm really appreciative um, and quite uh, moved by the support this season. I mean, it's nice to see the podcast on the iTunes charts and all that, you know, podcasts about bluegrass, but it's it's even more meaningful to hear um, and read appreciation from you who love this music the way that I do. So that that really means the world. So thank you so much for that. Um, reminder, if you haven't already, like and subscribe and leave a review or any of those things on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever Stitcher is. I still haven't figured that out. But however you get this, uh, like and subscribe and leave a review. It actually does help an awful lot. So uh, please, please do that. But yeah, big one for the final episode of the season. Jerry Douglas, incredible bluegrass musician. But really, I feel like this guy will go down in history as just one of the greatest American musicians of all time pioneering dobro player. I mean, I think virtually everybody who plays that instrument right now tries to play it like Jerry Douglas. Helped make some of the biggest records in the history of bluegrass music, not to mention as a session player, played on thousands of recordings, won 14 Grammy Awards. I just saw him on Saturday Night Live backing up like the top 40 pop musician Halsey, which is pretty wild. But again, Jerry Douglas, he can kind of play anything. But isn't it isn't it meaningful that even though he can play anything, he chooses as his first love to play bluegrass music? And in this interview, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about his life in bluegrass music. So we spoke at Jerry Douglas's hotel room at the IBMA, the International Bluegrass Music Association Conference in Raleigh, North Carolina. And as you're about to hear, we had a good time. I feel like I feel like we, we could do a part two. You know, I feel like we could touch on more of his career. Uh, but what a joy. Here's Jerry Douglas. So what, we're, what I want to focus on is kind of bluegrass, you know, like specifically mm-hmm. about bluegrass, this thing is. And like you were you were a kid. Your dad was in a bluegrass band. My dad had a bluegrass band, but because he, you know, he moved from West Virginia up to, to uh, work in the steel mills. In Ohio. In Ohio, northeastern Ohio. And... There were so many people exactly like him that moved from there in Kentucky and Tennessee, you know, that he found a, he found all these guys from West Virginia and they made they formed a band and he was the guitar player, lead singer, and and they would come over to our house and rehearse and you work up these songs and everything. So I was this little kid rolling around on the floor learning how to arrange a song. Right. You know? Yeah. That's. I mean, did they play gigs at all? Was it? They played gigs. They played bars. You yeah, know, beer joints and stuff like that. Beer joints, they weren't they weren't uh, taverns, they weren't bars, they were beer joints. Right, right. <laughs> there's a difference. <laughs> yeah, there's the difference. The people well, don't know, but there's a difference. Yeah. When there was, you know, an Alcan, you know, right across the road from this bar that we played called uh, the Grizzly Bear. <laughs> For what? Why the hell? Grizzly bear, I don't know, but but it it was great because these the, the thing would empty out and these guys could would roll in there and we had our regular crowd plus these guys who were probably from the south mm-hmm. who 
you know, their watering hole became like nirvana for them because it had bluegrass in it. Right, right. And and it was packed every time we played there. And uh, I'd make my nineteen dollars, and and uh, it was fun. It was a great way to great way to learn how to play because you're you have to project. You have to learn how to play. You have to you know because it's bluegrass is a you know uh, an acoustic music. To get the volume up, you play harder. Yeah, right, right. And to get the and to be heard over a crowd that everyone in there is talking, you got to play really hard. Well, little Steven says that from the E Street Band. He says that what people forget with the new generation of musicians is that the E Street Band spent a lot of time in bars figuring out what works, what makes people dance. And I think about that with JD Crow too. And I want to get to that eventually. But those years at the Holiday Inn, <laughs> he was playing every single night at the Holiday <laughs> Holiday Inn, the greatest bluegrass banjo player in history, or like one of them, playing in the Holiday Inn every night. What what that did for him putting a band together, rehearsing it over and over. You can't you can't beat it. You can't beat it. Yeah, it's a t- it's the Malcolm Gladwell ten thousand hours thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, they were yeah. playing the 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 cave, right? Of of Lexington, Kentucky. That's crazy. <laughs> so so you were playing you played mandolin first when you were a little kid. Is that played right? mandolin when I was about five years old, and and then I got a guitar for Christmas, and but it was like it was a silver tone guitar, the cheapest you know sears guitar and it was like playing a cheese grater you know already and uh we didn't know anything about lowering the action to make it easier or anything like that the neck was probably not that straight anyway but about a year or two into that i saw flat and scruggs and saw josh graves Tell me about that that concert. Yeah, I remember the smell of the popcorn at that concert. I mean, it was just like going to see, you know, it was a religious experience for me because uh, I'd been hearing them on the radio and on the records, you know, my dad collected. But to see them live and to see how they worked, I mean, the choreography and everything that was involved, it was nothing like that. In it was an Opry package show that came through Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, Stambaugh Auditorium, which I thought was long gone, but still standing. Oh, cool. I would love to take the Earls of Leicester there and play. And it would just bring it all full circle for me. Right. right? You imagine that. Because I, I remember walking out of there that night and seeing all the musicians around the buses. But we didn't go over there because we didn't want to bother them. Of course. But um, Who else was on the show? Uh, Roy Acuff, bashful brother Oswald, was playing the dobro with him. And Ray Price, I remember Ray Price being there, and there were probably some dancers. Uh, but the ones that grabbed my attention were Flat and Scruggs. So were you, I mean, there's this great photo of J.D. that I'm sure you've seen of, like, him in the front row watching Earl Scruggs. You can see, were you like that? Was there watching <laughs> I, I remember Graves? I was, we were sitting sort of uh, stage, ro- stage left side back center. And it was October 26th or something like that, 1963. Cool. Uh, Johnny Warren found it in his dad's date book. And uh, so, but I, I remember everything about it. I mean, flat and scrugs and red coats, ties, and the rest of the band just dressed, you know, nice, but not exactly like them. And, but I remember, vividly remember um, Ray Price coming out and he had this blue coat on and on the back of it was the Cherokee Cowboys, but it was, he had this beautiful nudie suit. Right. On. 
Right. And that really hit me. But and, and at a different time, I saw when I saw Jim and Jesse, they had blue coats, right? right. Blue coats on, red ties, and and I remember seeing Carter Stanley and Carter and Ralph one time. So this was another separate time. But I remember Carter having on red patent leather shoes. Oh, these guys were good dressers. They they dressed up for that kind of they stuff. They certainly yeah. yeah. They would. Alice Gerard told me a story about Carter and Ralph going into a festival, and Alice said they were driving into one of those country music parks, right? Everything around in Ohio, right? Yeah, there were so there were a couple of big ones in Ohio, and then there was Sunset Park. I think that might have been it. Uh, Carter and Ralph, they said they used to keep their windows up, even though in the scalding heat, to make people think they had air conditioning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they did stuff like that. I mean, that went that went on forever. Even when you got a bus, you'd have thought your air conditioner's broke, but don't let them know. Yeah, you know? <laughs> don't let them see you sweat. I think most people, when they see when they saw Flatten Scruggs, they fell in love with Earl, especially. I mean, Earl was kind of the. I, how many banjo players have you met that said, "Oh yeah, I saw Earl Scruggs, and that changed my life"? Or yeah. you know, or I saw Benny Martin, and I wanted to play the fiddle. I, I mean, I, I haven't met that many people who have had their lives changed like Uncle Josh, like you have. Have you given any thought to why that might be? Like, what what is it? about the dobro well it was it was something about <clears throat> the way it looked i mean i'd only seen it on record covers i didn't have one i'd seen it on record covers and it just looked cool to me because it came out of the art deco period so it was you know designed to attract attention of you know anybody uh, <clears throat> just because of the design and it worked i don't know it's just a freak the whole thing is a freak that it works at all is that yeah it's it's not it's like the bumblebee it's an unlikely yeah <laughs> yeah these you know? these czech these slovakian brothers make a, a hawaiian guitar but it's not loud enough so they put a speaker in it <laughs> and then then they got everything right because it was just you know they built it just just big enough to fit in the guitar and uh, and not uh a mess with the construction right of the guitar that's what drew drew me to it was I already was in love with the sound of it, uh, but seeing it and watching him work it and throw it up into the vocal microphone and play it, mm-hmm. I mean he had to to raise his his right shoulder up really high, and he the way you play dobros you wrap your arm under the strap so that that stabilizes the guitar so he that's way he was pull he was pushing that guitar up into that microphone. Because they don't, they had they had maybe two, maybe three microphones on stage, and the bass just worked, you know. Right. Uh, Jake Tulloch was such a bass player. Uh, Jake Tulloch, Rock Hooter's favorite bass player. Is that so? Yeah, he went off on him. Uh, you know, something I read one time, and I just couldn't believe it that he knew that much about it. But he was like. He was the best bass player of all time. Right, right, right. <laughs> I would take Tulloch, but he was. He, yeah. he was. he was so good, you know, just this hillbilly guy, but he, he played the bass. Uh, and Josh played the, uh, the dobro and th- would throw it up into that microphone and then back out, and here would come Lester in, and Earl's right close behind, you know. It was, it was amazing. Dig a hole, dig a hole in the middle, dig a hole in the Like yeah. football team. It was. It was. It's a team sport. Yeah. Bluegrass music to me is a team sport. So you, you famously you say to your dad, "Hey, I want to. Can you raise up the action on my guitar? Right? Can I? So I, I want to play like that." 
He did. We 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 took a. I think we used a toothbrush <laughs> <laughs> to get the axe. Get the get the, to get the action up. Yeah. You know, uh, higher at the nut, and then uh, and then you know hoped that would hold the pressure, you know, increased because the tuning was higher than the, the guitar tuning. And, and then it snapped in half. It, it did. <laughs> I mean, I, I used it really? to, I remember you having a piece of copper tubing for my first bar, my first slide. But I did come home from school one day, and we, we kept our guitars stacked on a cedar chest. And the, this window uh, was in a position where at some point of the day, the sun would just pour in straight onto the guitars, and my poor little Sears oh. guitar was on top with no braces, and uh, in it at all. And I I hit one latch on the case, and the whole guitar went <laughs> slam shut, <laughs> just from end to end, it went like that. Oh my god! And I thought, well, that's the end of that. So your dad gets you a dobro, right? Well, we found we found he heard about a, a dobro, so we went there. They're hard to find, man. And we we bought it, and I remember sitting in the back of the car while he, they made some stop to see some friends on the way home, and I didn't get out of the car. I just sat in the back seat and played it, and I was thinking, this is the last guitar I'll ever need. What was it? Do you remember? Do you still have it? It was a, it was a Stella guitar with F-holes, and it had a cover plate, but under that cover plate was just painted silver. Oh, good. <laughs> And I didn't know that because I bought it in the dark. Yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> so uh, we bought it. Got it. I was sitting in the car. The thing sounded so good. I thought, man, this sounds just like Josh Graves. I'll never have to. This is it, man. Now I'm really going to learn how to play this thing. And then daylight came and found out this is not really a dobro guitar. Do you still have it? I still have it. Yeah. Yeah, it's in my studio in the corner gathering dust. But... uh then we then in around 1966 1967, uh, a company called Mosrite bought the Dobro name, and they started producing Dobros, but they didn't have the same body style, and there were some changes in them, uh, and they weren't really great, well built guitars, not like the Dobros were. But that's what I started playing, and it you know it was it was a Dobro, so. That's what I was playing with the country gentleman when I first started with him. Were, were you good right away? Pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Did- I I had you know when I got the forward roll, it was like oh, it was like oh my God, invite the whole neighborhood in. He's just he's just figured out what forward roll is, <laughs> and uh, but I remember discovering that, and that was just like a key that opened the whole thing up to me, and I, so then I could play learn how to gradually learn how to play faster and and keep a roll going like a banjo roll to that's and that's how what josh did to i just learned that off of the records because there was no video you know there's none of that stuff and there wasn't anyone to play with i mean as far as i can tell from what i'm reading you were the only dobro player for miles i didn't know of another dobro player in the whole state of ohio no or I didn't know of another one. Man, oh man, isn't that, like isn't that sort of remarkable in retrospect? I know it's hard to say that for yourself, but yeah, yeah. I mean, without any any teaching, you know, the banjo player in the band who was just amazing, uh, we figured out how to tune it. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> imagine that. How do you tune this thing? But it was just an open G chord, and and some of it, some of it. You know, the first time I played it for somebody who knew what a dobro was and knew how it was tuned and all those things, 
It was like it was like learning if you'd learned a foreign language and spoke to somebody from that country the first time and they understood you. Right. It was that kind of feeling. So I heard that the country gentleman, you were a kid, right? The country gentleman heard you at a festival or I something was like 16. that. Sixteen. Bill Emerson, who was just here and just inducted into the Hall of Fame. One here. of my favorite banjo players. The cleanest, cleanest banjo player yeah. in the world. Incredible. Uh, he, I looked out, I was playing with my dad's band on stage, and the country gentlemen were at that festival. I was born in East Virginia, let it go, And I look out, and I see Bill Emerson out to the left at the back of the crowd, and I see Doyle Lawson at the back of the crowd on the right, and I look, and I see Charlie Waller and Bill Yates. They're all standing out there, and they're watching me, scouting me like a football player, you know? And uh, they asked me to go to leave with them from that festival. And I said, no. Aren't you in school? Uh, yeah, I was about to go back. I was about to go into my uh, junior year of high school. And uh, I said, I don't think I don't think I can because I, I need to go to school. <laughs> but, you know, and Bill Emerson and I stayed in touch. He wrote me letters. I wrote him back uh, all that year. And then once in a while they would come through and pick me up. And I would go out for the weekend with them and then come back in on a Monday morning at 2 o'clock in the morning and then go to school, you know, and try to make it up and down the steps and go to school. So I went out on the road with them on the summer between my uh, my junior and senior year Man, high must, school. It must have been a trip because those guys were, I mean, they weren't they weren't old compared to like They us. were in their 30s. Yeah, but it must have seen, it must have been odd for you to go out with these kind of older guys, right? Yeah. On, on the road. Right? And, I, and I asked my dad about that. And, you know, just in the last couple of years, it dawned on me, you know, after I'm, I've been a parent, you know, and had my own 16-year-old kids. And, uh, and I thought about it and I thought, I said, Dad, you let me go out on the road with a bunch of guys you didn't know and and just kind of like live there for, you know, three or four months. And and he said, but they were my favorite band. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> so they must be okay. They must be all right, guys. Man, what an education I got that year. Is that though. So? It was like somebody had just turned you loose. You mean? They definitely had. And I stayed the whole summer at Bill Yates' house in uh, Annandale, Springfield, Virginia. And a sidebar to that is Dave Grohl. From the Foo Fighters? Foo Fighters. Yeah. He grew up in Warren, Ohio as well. Oh, okay. And he was about six years younger than me. He and I moved to Springfield, Virginia at the same time. And he, we started talking about it. He lived at the other end of the street that I was on. At that time, building grunge bands, playing in, in garage bands with other kids that he met in the neighborhood. And I was, you know, just just uh, bussing out of there, just living there on that street, but but going out on the road and playing music. Playing bluegrass. Yeah. And we, we had this discussion at the Grammys one year about, you know, his grandfather worked at Republic Steel. My, my dad worked at Copper Weld Steel. You know, we had all these things in common. He's got a... He's got a, a, a street named after him 
in Warren, downtown Warren, and I have a big uh, mural on a building in War in Warren. Ohio. Man, so it's oh like, man, it's a, it's this very small world. Yeah, it certainly is. So you you play with the you played with the gents, you played with the country gentlemen for for a pretty long time there. Do you, so for a year. Yeah, and then yeah. I heard it was something like with JD. Well, maybe I'll just ask you how did how did you end up? Because I think at one point you were playing with both at the same time, right? It's a very short time. Uh, Ricky Skaggs left the country gentleman. He was in the, the country he was gentleman, in the country gentleman with me. Very briefly, right? Too well for the first year, yeah. Uh, and when that some that summer, and then part of the next year, and then he went, he split, went to work with JD when uh, Larry uh, Larry Rice had left the band. Tony's brother. Yeah, those are great records. Yeah, 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 great records. Oh, that studio in in uh, Lexington, Lemco. There was a fellow there, uh, Cecil Jones, who had had opened a studio. And um, had been a drummer for the Barnum and Bailey Circus. No way. And really? retired and opened the studio, and everybody recorded there. And JD recorded all his early records there. Um, Exile, the band Exile. Did you ever hear that? No. I want to love you all over. <laughs> <laughs> They, they I'm going to cut there. that out. That's going to be my ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> I do that shit. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, they were they were there recording there. And I remember we were in there one time recording for somebody. So Ricky and I became like, you know, part of the part of the staff musicians, you know, when we we didn't have any money. This and is when you were with the gentleman? We, well, this, this was, oh, I've jumped ahead. But because we were with the gentleman, Ricky left. I uh, I followed because I, we we re- recorded uh, with Tony Rice on his first record called California Autumn. So I played on that record. And then Tony went, hmm, okay, this guy can play. And uh, so I got, you know, really into Tony's playing. And Tony and Ricky went down to play with J.D. and Tony and Bobby Sloan, who was the the fiddle player in the Kentucky Colonels, you know. So I, I got married in Oklahoma, went home on the Country Gentleman bus to D.C., and got in my car and with all our stuff, and moved to Lexington, Kentucky, and started working with J.D. Crow. Pretty quickly, eh? Right away. Man. It was all too much, but I was too dumb to know that. So, and uh, too much. It was it, that was a lot of change, you know. But I was I was up in the ante with the music. I right. felt like I was moving, making a, a positive move, musical move. And, you know, not a, not a great financial one, you know, nothing to nothing was not, not great. No. But, but then we did a tour, the band, J.D. and Tony and all of us, and, 
we did a tour that summer and we were the the darlings you know of the festival circuit we were the band's band had you already made the record the rounder record had made the rounder record uh while i was still in the country gentleman and i went in to play on like one or two songs and ended up playing on most of the record I talked to Ricky about this. Um, it's been fun to ask people about it because it's it's this storied record, right? And I won't tell you what Ricky said when I asked him this question. I'll tell you. I tell you afterwards. But he, I said, you know, why why what made that record so great? Because it is this. It is this. Some would say game changing record mm-hmm. in in bluegrass music. What 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 in your opinion made that record so? Well, great? I think I think you know I I came in as as a side man, you know, just like I did a lot more after that, but. Uh, those guys had been playing, like you say, they'd been playing Holiday Inn for seven, you know, six nights a week for weeks, weeks, you know, and they were tight. They were really tight. They knew what, they knew what each other were thinking, you know, while they were doing this. They'd done it so much. It was so much muscle memory involved in it, but they were just talented guys. I mean, just amazing musicianship on the stage. And in a in a town playing in a Holiday Inn bar, you know, to to the, about the same crowd every night, you know. But I man, imagine there were transients coming through, staying at the hotel. Yeah, they like would walk in there and go, "Wow!" I think Bailiff told me. Bailiff Fleck told me about like making a pilgrimage to Lexington to see that band, right? Mm-hmm. To see JD play. At the many Holiday people Inn. did. Yeah. Many many people did. One of the guys in my dad's band did it. Man. And and uh, and brought back recordings of it, and I finally heard those recordings, and they're hilarious. And he went down when Red Allen was in the band, uh, kind of a, a we'll say uh, work blue a little bit, right? It was like going to see uh, uh, Flat and Scruggs with Red Fox. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, but yeah, yeah, it's kind of that's kind of how it was. I mean, it right away, or the one of the first things on the on the tape that I've listened to is just like so blue oh that God. you couldn't, you know, it, you couldn't do that now. Mm-hmm. You couldn't. No one could ever hear that. No. And they they were so tight, and they came down and they had their they had their stuff. You know, they weren't looking for songs. They 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 knew them, and they just added me to them. Mm. And gave me some pretty good places to play in them. And I just kind of fell in with it. And J.D. JD wasn't crazy about the idea of a dobro player, first of all. But Ricky was kind of pushing the issue, and so was, so was Tony. And uh, then we got to know each other a little bit, played in the studio that much. And, and I, there was, you know, I think there was a lot of respect gained. And J.D. Crow to this day is, 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 was probably the best boss man I ever had, never mm. had a ill word you know he just was wonderful the whole the whole thing was like a just like a cinderella story you yeah. know, it was like I, I feel like you were the first dobro player like i feel like a lot of people had to take a chance on the dobro through you you know what i mean like i feel like a lot of band i, I didn't know this until i started doing this work that i think there was a bit of a how do i put this like maybe an anti-dobro prejudice in yeah, bluegrass music totally you know? it was an it was a sort of a I was squatting in their territory. Yeah, because Monroe never had a dobro player, right? No, but Josh Graves would go out and play with him once in a while when he'd get, you know, pissed off at Flat and Scruggs. He would, he would 
leave the band for a couple of weeks and go play with Bill Monroe. No way. Or Jimmy Martin. Wow. He then he'd come back. Yeah, right. Were you ever, were you ever approached by Lester or, or Earl? I was approached by Lester when you know Marty Stewart was playing with Lester, and and uh, it was in the late seventies. And at that point, Ricky and I had a band called Boone Creek after we'd left Crow. That whole Crow band exploded right after we, at the end of that summer. I mean, it was the shortest, one of the shortest gigs I've ever had, but one of the most, you know, glorious in my mind was to go play with those guys. And then all of a sudden we go to Japan and play in Japan. And that was mind-blowing. Yeah, how so? Everything. Everything, you know, it was culture shock, food shock. I remember, you know, we were all looking for McDonald's, you know, in this. And now I know is like you were in the land of the best food that you could possibly get. And you're trying to find a hamburger. That's nuts. It's amazing how, how well it's loved in Japan, though, you know. Like yeah. It is. I mean, when we went over, it was at the height of the bluegrass, you know, just this chaos of they were just wanted to know about it so bad and to see the American bands play it. Uh, we had to run to a car with people grabbing our clothes. You know, it was like being Elvis or the Beatles or something. And that's not happened since. Yeah. But, uh, but, but, <laughs> maybe but the it cops was not, grabbing you. It was <laughs> nice. It was nice that it happened once. Yeah, right, right, you know, it right. might have been some old man grabbed my coat. I don't know. But um, so, so Lester approaches you when you get back. Yeah, Lester approached me when I was playing with the Boone Creek. But he also had this great dobro player with him named Charlie Nixon, who I really liked. The guy he had a great sound in dobro, and he covered the parts. He did fine, and I didn't want to take somebody's job. I had a job with the uh, Boone Creek at that time, and I was I was happy doing what I was doing. And I thought the heyday of Lester was kind of over, mm. and it kind of was. Mm. You know, it was in the in the toward the end of his his uh, career when he would come out. You know, a third of the way through the show because he just wasn't able to do a whole show. He wasn't well, right? And Sonny Osborne offered me a job the same day at the same festival, and I'm just going, "What's going on?" You know, and uh, that's hard, man. That's hard to yeah decline gigs at all but it's hard to decline gigs with your heroes but i was playing with my buds you know and and we had built ricky and i had built this band we had built this band originally the band was supposed to be ricky and i and keith whitley mark pruitt and uh, a, a guy named lou reed whose name is lou pertle <laughs> he goes by lou reed this is not, a seldom not seen mm-hmm. seldom seen lou reed yeah he was going to play the bass not the velvet underground lou reed right. no <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I heard a good story about Lou Reed, the Velvet Underground. But uh, so Lou was supposed to come and play the bass, but he had a tobacco crop in the field and he couldn't leave it. And so he couldn't come. Mark Pruitt had just started a, a music store in Knoxville called the Pick and Grin, which became a huge store. And Keith decided to stay with Ralph. So we were, there we were, the two of us. And we had Terry Balkum. To, pl- to play the fiddle, but Terry said, I remember playing, you know, I played banjo when I was a kid. I mean, I, maybe I can just play banjo for a while. And he ended up being our permanent banjo player. And one of the great banjo players. Great banjo yeah, player. incredible banjo player. And he picked it up, and he sounded like Terry Balkum does today. When the first day I heard him, he sounded, he had that sound. 
And we got a guy named Wes Golding to, to be the lead singer, and he was a, turned out to be a great songwriter, and he would write all this stuff for us and all these great songs, and we'd go in the studio. We were in Starday Studio forever, cutting, cutting songs and evolving. You know, it was like, like you know, the band Genesis would go in the studio with nothing, but they had unlimited budgets. Mm. We had nothing. And, but the studio was just giving us credit. And we ended up getting a, a, a letter from RSO. RSO. It just started. Uh, Robert uh, Stigman, is his name? Uh, ended up being a, Bee Gees were on that label. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and uh, it was they, Spencer Davis came to see Boone Creek. And we were that day playing on a flatbed truck. At a, at a food town opening. In, so I think that pretty much blew our chances of being a pop pop band. But, <laughs> but they signed Kansas instead of us. Oh, wow. So Crazy. Good, I have, I have good move. <laughs> I have the first Boone Creek, Boone Creek record. Yeah? At home. Yeah, it has that great, that great sort of like doo-wop Daniel Parade at the end of it. Like, it's very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we were in that studio forever, and we ended up making this pop record. And at that point, I'd hired Vince Gill to come in. Who was he at this point to you? He was just a kid. He was he he was a friend of mine from Oklahoma. I knew Vince when he was 16 years old, and he was singing Eagle songs. And now he's in the Eagles. <laughs> I hope he gives Headley that once in a while. Yeah, yeah. I've been singing these songs longer than you have. <laughs> but uh, so we 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 after we lost that gig, the band fell apart because Ricky went with uh, Emmy Lou Harris. Right. She he got this great offer to go play with Emmy Lou, and you went with who, the Whites, right? And I went. I went back to the country gentleman for a couple of months and then I went and then moved to Nashville with the whites. I feel like your experimentation was going in a couple of different ways here, right? Because when I think about experimentation with bluegrass, there's a couple of different ways to think about it, at least, at least in my opinion. So there was like Boone Creek, which was experimenting in, in, in a lot of different ways. And then there was also kind of like the Tony Rice, Grisman. You got a lot of like Grappelli influence in there, um, a lot of like post-bop influence in there. Like Yeah, Ricky and I would sit in our apartments in Manassas, Virginia, and just just scour these uh, Django and Grappelli records, mm-hmm. just wanting to be them, mm-hmm. you know, just and learning all that music. And at the same time, uh, well, just a little, just like two years later, we're in Nashville and we're playing with part of Charlie Daniels' band. And Carl Himmel was playing drums with us, who went on to play with Neil Young forever. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're, we're making this pop record, you know. So it's bluegrass music. It's easier to go that direction, pop or rock or, or any direction, you know, sort of classicals because, you know, there's so much reading involved. Mm-hmm. But it's easier to go that direction than the opposite direction. The it's, opposite direction it, being? It's harder for rock musicians to come to bluegrass because right. they don't have the physical chops and, for it. And they never quite sound like bluegrass musicians. They sound like they came from somewhere else and learned how to 
you know, they sound like they learned it in college. Yeah. In particular, yeah. and I, I find with, I mean, you know more than me, but I find with banjo players and dobro players. Yes. Yes. Those, those, I mean, like even I'm, I'm not going to say any names. So I don't want to say anything. And guitar players. Anybody. Yeah. Guitar players. And because it's such a physical music. And uh, like I was saying before, you learn how to get up over the crowd, you know, or at least so you can hear yourself. Mm. And it's sort of, it's really kind of, you almost have to have some Southern connection to yeah. be real, yeah. to be realistic and to sound realistic. Well, that's what Ralph used to say, right? Ralph said he never hired any Northern musicians. And he said, nothing against Northern musicians. I know so many great Northern musicians, Bela Fleck, Tony Trishka, Russ Berenberg, you know, you start down that and Andy Statman, you know, and that, but they were all up in Ithaca, uh, most of them going to Cornell and formed their bands up there and came south, you know, would come to Union Grove and watch the fiddle contest, you know, where, where those places were, it was wild. It was right after Woodstock. So Everybody thought a festival, oh, it's going to be like Woodstock. So uh, thousands of people would show up, you know, and, and, the, and the population of the festival would stay the same because somebody would die, overdose, and the baby would be born. Yeah, right. You know, and, and so the, the same amount of people left that came in, but just different people. <laughs> Someone would die. They're going to be born. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I remember in Glenville, Virginia, I, I watched a guy jump off a tower, mm -hmm. and, and everybody was nuts. I mean, you walked in, and there were tables full of Black Beauty's pills and uh, some hash here, some marijuana here, you know, and just go down the aisle and, and in this on this private property. At a bluegrass festival? Yes. I didn't know there was so much drugs at bluegrass festival. Oh my God, man. We were the originators of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, I do I do I do wonder about that, man, because you know, like I, I, I think about Hartford and I think about Grisman and I think about you guys and I I you know, I, I think in polite society we don't tend to talk about this stuff too. You know, but but sorry, let me try that again. In bluegrass we don't talk about it. In rock I talk about it all the time. In country I talk about it all the time. In jazz I talk about it all the time. Bluegrass we, you don't talk about it because we're we we come from the Bible belt. Right. So that's wrong. But there was there was drugs, there was dope. There Definitely. Was, yeah. I mean the first time I met John Hartford, I was playing with Crow and it was the first festival that I played with, with J D Crow. And it was in Lexington, big festival. We were the headliners. And I uh, was walking kind of through this grass parking lot, you know, where there were parked cars. And I hear this guy go, hey. And I looked, and it's John Hartford. And he's sitting there between a couple of cars, and he's smoking a joint. And he said, hey, man, come over here. And I go over, and I, the first time I meet John Hartford, he just hands me this joint. Had you smoked a, had you smoked a joint before? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but yeah. not this one. Not, yeah. <laughs> not this particular strength. I think it was called the gentle on my mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everything was gentle for the rest of the day. But, but it was, we'd already played, so I didn't have to worry about like putting one finger in front of the other, you know, or anything trying to play. So, but I sat there and, got to know John Hartford in, you know, on sitting on the ground in the grass, smoking a joint with John Hartford. And we've stayed friends forever. Is that, is that what led you guys to that experimentation? Cause it, it really did take a turn, you know, like with Grisman, definitely. Yeah. I used to go out, uh, if I was going to record with Grisman, I would go out a couple days early to get used to the thought mm -hmm. <laughs> because we didn't have anything that strong in the East. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it was, was all coming out of Mendocino County, you know, and, and, uh, in California and, it was just so much stronger on the West Coast. So you, you, when you got in the studio with Grisman, you know, 
he was going to smoke and he was hoping you would too so you would all be on the same kind of the same wavelength you know and and have the same just lose no just all lost abandoned you know just no no inhibitions right and that's how that music got so good i remember it we were at a rehearsal and tony rice said hey hey david i'm out of cigarettes and i can't i don't know where the store is and grisman said hey man Smoke this, you'll find it. (laughs) (laughs) But it it was a kind of not based around it, but it was always there. Yeah, right. And it wasn't, it was, it didn't rule everything because music was ruling, but that sort of atmospheric pressure uh, led you to places you'd never been. Right. With your instrument. And I think that was important because you guys were so good. And I think what I mean by that is that you guys had kind of done, listen, I don't, I don't think you can ever become the best at anything. Or I don't think there is grass. such a thing. I don't, I don't think that exists. I think that's a thing that journalists put on musicians. Well, there's always going to be somebody better. Yeah, exactly. I hope. But I think that when you reach a certain level with bluegrass, also I think you start to go, well, what else can I do here? Like, where else can this music go? I love 145. I love GCD. I think it's the greatest. And I think eventually you come back to it, and I want to go back you to do. that. Yeah, but you I, do. But I think it's important with you and Bela and Tony. I mean, Bela's a bit younger, but you and Tony and Sam, mm-hmm. you guys needed to, and Grisman, you guys needed to find some other stuff. Even if it would alienate bluegrass people, you needed to do it. We were hungry for it, and, and Newgrass was really experimenting strongly with they were pushing it, you know. I remember being at a festival in Black Mountain, North Carolina, and the guy said, the promoter said, you guys play one more song, I'm pulling the plug. <laughs> and he did. Really? Yeah, right in the middle of Prince of Peace is coming. Right in the middle of Prince of Peace, the lights went out. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's funny now. wasn't funny then, but no. but they were doing, you know, 18-minute songs. Right. You know, and... And bluegrass music was a three-minute song. It was like a, you know, a, the attention span of a snail. Right. And but it but it was also what radio had presented. You know that's why all songs were were three minutes or two minutes and a half because that's what would fit on the seventy-eight mm-hmm. or however. And and you had if you wanted to do more than one song, you had to cut it way back. Right. Did, did, did it feel like a brotherhood? I feel like in my knowledge of this music, I see you, you and Tony and Sam, even just you and Tony and, and Sam. And, yeah. yeah. And Bale came around. That's later. definitely a brotherhood, that the, that three right there. And, and I, one, one common thread that's been coming up in all my interviews is that you meet somebody where you go, ah, this person finally gets me. Alison Brown told me it happened with Stuart Duncan. Ricky Skaggs told me it happened with Keith Whitley. Mm-hmm. And you feel you feel a bit lost, you feel a bit alone, and you find the For right For me, people. it was Ricky. For me, it was Ricky. Ricky was the first guy that I played with. You may, I mean, the guys in the, in the Country Gentleman were older than Ricky and I. Yeah. Ricky and I, they're two years, I think he's two years older than me. And uh, I found this kinship with Ricky. It was sort of like he was already, like, he and... Keith were joined at the hip, but Keith was pl- not was playing with Ralph and, and 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 Ricky had to get out of there because he just he got exhausted at one point and got out of there and so he started playing. He met Doyle and he met uh, uh, Bill Emerson and came into the Country Gentleman and introduced this whole new you know this this injection of Ralph Stanley, but gospel music. They started singing gospel quartets. You know, old old Monroe songs that were, 
you know, covered up for years. Ricky knew where they were. And he introduced them to that, and then he moved on to JD. And we didn't really get into that with JD because we had this powerhouse guitar and banjo thing going on. Mm. So it was a different complexion. The music's had different different complexions and different directions. You guys still buds? Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's never gonna that's never gonna end. And and Marty and I are the same way. Marty Stewart and I. We met on the road. Him playing with Lester. You know, he, but he was a kid and he needed to be a kid. And we were all Boone Creek. We were all kids. And we just met and, you know, probably smoked a little bit. And we were hanging out at a pool and we just struck up this kinship. And he was about the same age as us, even though he went on the radio at 13. And, and Sam probably told you the story about he saw he saw Marty Stewart on. He said, if that kid can do it, I can do it. No, really? And, I haven't, I haven't and, talked to Sam yet. Sam is the, the kind of the last. Well, get um, get with Sam, man. Sam is like a encyclopedia. I, I feel like but I, it's, there's a there's a thread running in here, right? Because I think you're a kid. You're like 14, 15 years old. And then the the, the um, country gentlemen see you and kind of grab you. You're telling me the story about you know Marty, seeing Marty Stewart and going like I see something in here. And isn't isn't that the case with Allison too? Didn't you know Al? Didn't you see Allison with Allison Krauss? Yeah, when she was 14. When she was 14, Ken Irwin uh, with Rounder Records was looking for a producer for her, somebody who could you know one of us young enough to not drag her into the the old stuff, old bluegrass, but she was she was going she was headed somewhere. You were off the road for a while by this point, right? Well, I, well I was off the road. Do I was playing sessions at this point? Yeah. I'd, I'd left the road and was just doing killing myself with sessions. I, 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 tell me if you don't want to talk about this, but I feel like after you left the Whites, there was something you learned there about being in a band because I don't think I saw you in a band after that. You were with Union Station, but it was Alison Krauss Union Station with Jerry Douglas. Well, it was a band though, but the, the reason that I I put my name, I wanted my name out there was because I already had a career. and I didn't yeah. want to disappear into a band. Yeah, but I feel like you learned something about being in bands, you know? Definitely. With the Whites, I did because I was put in, I was in a role where I was backing this great singing trio. And so I was learning how to pay attention to song substance, you know, and how to play my instrument to make it feel like it was part of the vocals and part of the substance. That's the joy of your playing to me, man. I love your, I love all your records. I love the Glide record a lot. I love like, but you in between a phrase. Mm-hmm. That's what. That's where Allison and I fell in. Fell in too. I mean, it was just like this call answer thing with us, and right. I knew exactly what to say. Right. And and listening to her, she just put me in a place where I I I didn't play like that with anybody else. Right. And and but learning how to play backup against a vocalist, a great vocalist, was my, that really, I think that is my forte more than any solo records or anything like that. Yeah. Solo records are just a pressure release in yeah. your head. You got all these things rolling around. You write these songs and uh, they, they work well for that. But then you go back to your comfort zone, which is, for me, was playing, you know, has been to play with Allison and to and to be her foil. Right. So so Allison was fourteen. You get this call to be a producer. So we go in this. We go in the studio. And, but she was she was uh, playing us tunes and singing John Cowan songs. She was really enamored uh, by uh, John Cowan, and she was singing these songs. And but she really wanted to be a fiddle player. She wasn't re- interested in being a singer. And we were all going, No, you're a singer. You're a singer. 
and she hadn't quite straightened out her voice. You know, she hadn't found her voice yet. But then I went in the studio with her. Out of the you know, Sam and Bela and I were there listening to her. And those guys were in Newgrass Revival, so they're gone all the time. I'm but surprised you weren't in Newgrass Revival. I was kind of the fifth member, uh, the, the the extra member of them. I had a, I had a like, you can be, you can come play with us anytime, right? Kind okay, of thing. Sure. So you guys are sitting there listening to. Allison. So we're so, yeah. sitting listening to this 14 year old girl, <laughs> and and we're just knocked out, you know, by what we're hearing underneath. What, what I was listening to, what I thought, you know, I see the potential here. I'm not a, I'm not a big city producer. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I didn't really even know entirely what being a producer was at that point. But, but I was the one that ended up going in the studio with her, not the other guys. And Ken was producing, but I was actually coming up with the arrangements and the, and the. And the ideas, you know, and you know, maybe if you sing this in a different way, or or if we do this this vocal stack differently, you know. And it's too late to cry, cause we left it all behind. Too late to cry, cause there's nothing left to find. You won't get more than you live on for. And it's too late to cry tonight. Cause I'd had enough. Uh, on the road experience and you know, enough experience with bands and music at that point to know what would tickle the, the funny spot. But could you so. have predicted it would get as big as it did? No. Well, I don't. I'm not sure. It, it you know, it, after after the first, we did the first record, played on a couple of of Union Station records. You know, that were different bands. You know, weren't the one that that traveled so much, yeah, the one that, that I was in. Yeah, because you, you, Adam Steffi was in that band, right? Adam right. Steffi yeah. and Jeff White. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Adam Steffi was after Jeff White. I mean, cause she kind of, like, dropped a whole band and picked up a different band. And, and Allison Brown was with her, I know, for a little while. Allison, Allison Brown was, was, in, was in the second band. Was, uh, and they were big buds, and I don't know what happened, but... Uh, we talked about it. We suddenly, got, we got it did, it. suddenly they weren't. And, but... They were just they were just clowns together. They'd show up. They were everywhere together. I think it was maybe what happened to them is they just spent too much time together. <clears throat> but it was it was a it was a good thing. It was a great band. Barry Bales and and Adam and and Allison and uh, then Ron came in, and then Ron him. then when Adam quit, I was in the studio uh, producing Lonesome uh, Lonesome River Band with Sammy Sheeler and. All those guys and Ronnie Bowman. I was producing their record, and uh, it was the same year that the tornado came through and tore up Nashville. When we had to go hide in a in a basement to keep them being. It, it hit our neighborhood. It hit the neighborhood. It, it hit the studio. It hit the house. It hit everything. Just like coming out of that house was like the Wizard of Oz when it goes from black and white to color. You know, it was, it was really surreal. Sounds terrifying. It was, but. Uh, with Allison, then there was a record. I've got that old feeling. Was that what's called? Yeah, I believe so. And uh, Bill Vorndick, the uh, the engineer, and I produced that record. Right. And that was like one of the first bluegrass records to sell more than a hundred thousand copies right out of the barrel. I'm looking out of 
Yeah, what was on that record? Steel Rails. Uh, I've got that old feeling. Was the Every Time You Say Goodbye on that record? No, that was that was the first uh, with Dan, with Dan and Adam right. and Ron. It's a good song. That's a great record and, and great band. Yeah. But when when uh, Adam left the band, Allison called me and I was in the middle of the, this other session and she said, "We don't know what we're gonna do. We don't even know if we're gonna be a band anymore." We just, you know, they were just so shocked, you know, that Adam had left because Adam did everything. He was the MC, you know, he he was the brain. And Allison at that point didn't want to be the leader of anything. She just wanted to sing play the fiddle and <clears throat> she said would you come out with us and play for you know a couple we got a couple of shows booked would you come play them with us and I said you know I'll go home and talk to my wife about it because I hadn't been on the road really for a long time but we both she liked Allison and you know and said you know it's fine with me so I went out with them and we were out for a couple of weeks and then like second show or something like they all just kind of ganged up around me and said would you just stay and was that a hard decision no <laughs> not for me i was digging it because it was really all it was all down the pike for me it was like back up this great singer this great trio play solos different music completely different you know, different kind of music. The songs were coming from different places. We had songwriters. You know, John Pinnell was writing left and right. And, yeah. and we you, just... You and Ron played together really well. Ron, Ron yeah. Block, you guys, there was there was some synchronicity there between... You yeah, and we yeah. were careful about it. Yeah. We we really worked on it, you know, to, to where we weren't playing on top of each other. And uh, we had a focus. We had a focus. We had Allison's voice. Mm. And we just wanted to paint you know, it's like painting around that, just painting, just painting the completing the picture around this beautiful voice that could get angry at times. You know, when she'd start into Oh Atlanta, you know, she would so suddenly start blasting. She can sing loud if she wants to. In, in the middle of that, I mean, and then the kind of the O Brother thing kind of happens, right? You know, like, yeah. I mean, so that was, I'll, I'll, I don't like to say this usually right off the bat, but that was, that was, I'm one of the people who got swept up in that. You know, the reason I told you I was a, thir a 15 year old kid who wanted to play the banjo yeah. in, a, in a province where there were two other banjo players, <laughs> that's because I heard the soundtrack. My brother brought home the soundtrack. I listened to the uh, Man of Constant Sorrow recording with Dan singing. Are you on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, well, let me thank you then. Changed my life. Everything well, in yeah. my life took up. I, I might have been an accountant. Like, my, my life took a completely different direction because of that, yeah. that, that recording. Yeah. that You know, it happened to a lot of people. It was a big shot in the arm for bluegrass music. But mostly that record, one of the big engines on that record was... 9-11 I mean it all this all happened pretty much at the same time I mean and that record was total honesty you know it was a record with a movie as a vehicle and the, the movie was funny as hell and and it was a Coen Brothers movie when they asked me first T-Bone called up and said would you 
when you want to get involved in this, there's this, there's this uh, movie that the Coen brothers are making. Would you want to do any, be part of something? I went, hell yeah. Coen brothers, anything. I don't care what I have to do. <laughs> I loved it. Raising I'll, Arizona. I'll, I'll get kill. killed. I'll be shot. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And we ended up being in the movie. Yeah. But, but. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We, we're yeah, in there where they ride the guy out on a rail. We're, we're standing on stage with the, so we're the soggy bottom boys. Yeah, right. <laughs> but he, we, I remember when we, we had like a casting, it was like a casting night in an Oceanway studio upstairs in a, in a big room. Uh, there were so many people there. The Coens were there, T-Bone. Uh, I'd called the Whites to come. I thought they'd be perfect to, to be part of this. He said, he was, he, T-Bone said, you know, you know anybody you think they could be part of this, you know, just tell them to show up. So the Whites showed up, uh, Allison, all our band, we were all there. Uh, uh, the Fairfield Four were there. I mean, pretty much all of the music, Gil and Dave, you know, Gillian Welch and Dave Rollins was were Nor- there. Was Norman there? Norman, no, I don't think Norman was there. It's hard, to, it's hard to get him. We tried to get him for this. And you can't get him? In order to get him, we had to call his neighbor, because uh-huh. Norman doesn't have a phone. The neighbor <laughs> goes over to the house, lets Norman there's a phone, no, there's a phone call, and says, oh, Norman will call you back. He doesn't have a home phone there, you know, for God's sake. Did, did you get a hold of him? We're close. We're close. I hope you get him, because Norman, you know, he's a short answer guy until he gets going. Tony's the one, though. He's he's hard to get. Uh, cause yeah, you I, may not get Tony. Bela, Bela has been talking to him. I know Sam hasn't been talking to him. Critter, who I stayed he with. He called me Nashville. just out of the blue one day and said, you know, he said, my wife Pam, she had a heart attack recently, and she said she'd been thinking about a lot of things. And She said, she said I bet all your friends think you're a jerk because you don't ever talk to them. You don't ever talk to them. And he said, and I started thinking about He said, I think she was right. <laughs> and so he called me up, and we talked for an hour. Oh, man. And he talked as long as he doesn't go, uh, as long as he doesn't push his voice too hard like you mean. If he pushed his voice that hard, he would go into this, you know, dysphonia, this, this guttural kind of sound. And so I didn't. I wasn't talking to him about, man, you should do this. You should fix this. You should do this. I was just listening to him. I just was so happy to hear him. I just tell you, I love you, man. Glad to hear you and just listen to him. And it was like talking to him in 1975. Same voice, same voice all the way through the conversation. And then he just drops off the face of the earth. Yeah. But that, that band, that Manzanita record, I mean, you've been part of some incredible records. We talked about the JD record. We didn't even talk about Fluxology, which was a crazy record. Man. I, li- I listened to that on the way down. <laughs> that was my first solo record. I, I got it I on was, my phone. I had like a year's worth of angst in that record. That's, yeah. that's a good one. God. Can you talk to me about the Manzanita record just before we go? Well, Tony really wanted to do a record that didn't have a banjo on it. So he just didn't want to hear that sound anymore. I mean, he'd done all this time with Crow, and nothing against Crow, because Crow's the best of the best. But he just wanted to try something different. That Because Tony is a jazzer to the bone. I mean, he'll, he's got all the anxiety and depression, and you know he's not a heroin addict, but he would probably love to be. If he, he, he's just afraid of needles. 
so we I would go to Tony's house and we would listen to Eric Dolphy and Miles Davis, you know, till like four o'clock in the morning and then go to bed, get up at noon and start getting ready, go to the studio. The studio never started until five or six and uh, record all night and then do it all, all again the next day. But Tony wanted to do a record that sounded more like what he wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. And so there was no banjo involved and Ricky was on the record too. So it was Todd Phillips and Sam Bush and Tony and me. And so Ricky was Ricky was going to come to the record. Ricky was supposed to be there, but he all of a sudden he had to go and do this thing with Linda Ronstadt and Emmy Lou Harris and Dolly Parton. Mm, poor guy. The one that never came out. Another trio record? A trio record that never saw the light of day because oh. of contractual stuff, Dolly contractual stuff. Right. You know, all the record companies were fighting over it, so nobody got it. Right. And so he came from that, and we were in there just like always just learn, learn the song, didn't write anything down. We just remembered it. You know, we remembered it, and whatever state of mind we were in, we, we that was some of the most beautiful music that I can never remember playing, you know, up to that point. And, and it was just great. Just the quartet was really nice. Ricky came, when Ricky arrived, he started charting everything because he had just come from chart world, you know, where yet everybody was doing that in that studio. So he brought that with him, charted it out, you know, and if, if somebody didn't back up in the right place, he'd stop it, you know, and go, well, no, we got to start over because this is not according to the chart. Yeah. Picky yeah. Ricky, they say, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And it's worked for him. But uh, it lost a bit of its charm, but not really because he's just as much a part of it as the, as the four, other four of us. And he settled into it. Man, oh, man. I mean, what an what interesting record because it was like new grass, bluegrass, and like Canadian songwriters. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Tony always, you know, he had this thing, uh, Lightfoot thing, Lightfoot thing. And you guys did Summer Wages, Ian Tyson on the on the Crow record. Yeah. And all the beer taverns all down along Young Street, the dreams of the seasons are all spilled down on the floor. That's a Canadian song. Right? And and uh, Tony and, and uh, Gord are friends. Yeah. Yeah, I talked to I talked to Gord about and and uh, they even look the same. Yeah, they're gaunt, you know. They look, you know, it's like death eating a cracker. And and uh, that record, it was just so much fun to make. And we were having, we were experimenting with things like I got, you know, for one song, just for, just so we didn't have to put a reverbers find, you know, a reverb. We didn't really have the equipment yet to dial in exactly the th- the the sound that you wanted to hear. But I got down into a circular stairwell to do my part, to do my part for the record. So it had this natural mm. reverb mm. kind of thing on it. I forget which song it was, but this studio was amazing, and it had, it had been built. This room had been built for a guy who had. Uh, a great old violin, and he was going deaf. So he he designed this room to where he could play his violin in there and, and hear himself. And uh, we recorded up there until we found that it was just too reflective. And then we moved to the basement, and you know, killed everything was dead, silent. And then we had to rely on the machines to make the, the reverbs. But uh, we had so much fun, and there was so much camaraderie. 
and, and it was just it just you know it just gelled automatically yeah. just gelled and i was kind of playing the role of the banjo but it wasn't pingy and, and it wasn't uh, it was more guitar like and more friendly to tony ba- bela told i asked bela why he moved down south or like what was inspiring him and he said like i found out that tony rice was making records with no banjo in it i wanted to be that guy I, I thought I could be the banjo player that could, you know, I didn't like that these records didn't have banjo on them. I wanted to be that guy. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Yeah. And I mean, he made it. But, the, you know, like the, there was another there was another record we cut upstairs. Uh, they call it the Rattlesnake record. It's got a green cover and Tony standing on the front of it. And uh, that record had Crow on it. And then we, you know, we cut album band, bluegrass album band records after that. Oh, yeah. And uh, but we, you know, we cut so much stuff, and I've cut so much stuff with Grisman in that studio, in that one studio. And it, and I was in in Berkeley recently, and I, I just cruised the neighborhood, you know, like at midnight, trying to find that house, and found it. And it, it belongs to the university there now. Right. But it, uh, but you know, if you tell them you've got some history with it, they'll let you go in. And so we had so much fun though. And Billy Wolf by that time was coming in and doing this magical engineering for us and you know some of those records i'd leave there and go there's no way this record will ever see the light of day and it would come out it'd be beautiful you know he did these tape tape edits yeah i'd go in there some nights with grisman and there would be little pieces of tape all around the room and just with little labels underneath them of what they were little pieces they were going to put in later to, to you know when they needed to do an edit on a song they had it hanging on the wall there they'd just go to it oh man it was nuts it made me nervous i couldn't stay in the room when they were cutting this tape it was really like that's that you can't fix that no you can't if you lose it that's it it's gone it's, it, there's no doesn't un, work there's no undo button it's it's scary it is it's scary but it's the best way to record um you, man i could talk to you all day this is this is fun for me uh <laughs> It, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. If you got, I mean, a, if we you, got about halfway, or not even that. But I really kind of wanted to focus on some of the early years, kind of the formative years, because uh, and and kind of you coming up as a Dobro player. You did you ever meet Uncle Josh? Uh, yeah, we became great friends. I mean, I interviewed him for the film that's about him in the in the museum, right? And he had, at that point had lost both legs. And he'd lost one, and then, and then the other one had to go to so probably diabetes and a hard life of drinking and mm-hmm. just being a foggy mountain boy. Yeah. And uh, but I met him when I was 13 years old, and I, I hung around these people that we were camping at this festival, and he was playing with Lester, and so was Paul uh, Warren at the time. And so he would go back and forth. You know, he'd go play with Earl. And, you know, he was on the Kansas State record, you know, he and Vassar. And, and, but then he'd go back and play with Lester, you know, that was his meat, you know. Meat and potatoes was what Lester was doing. He, he'd made that stuff famous, and he became the main, he became the banjo of that band. You know, even though it was a banjo player, Josh was the, like the, the, the band leader. But he he must have um, whether he said it or not because again he's a foggy mountain boy. But it, it must have meant something to him that you were so inspired by him and became this great musician, this oh, great yeah. award winning, you know, legendary, federally government recognized <laughs> Mount Rushmore carved 
<laughs> well, he he uh, he was supposed to show up at this campsite. It was in Ottawa, Ohio, and he was supposed to show up at this campsite. And I, these guys told me, oh, Josh and Paul are coming by later. And I, what I didn't know was they were coming by to have drinks with their old friends, their old buddies. And but I was kind of like hiding out behind a tree with my dobro, you know. And I'd played a little bit for these people, and they went, hey, he should talk to you, you know. So. So I kind of I just waited, like I can't believe I did this, but I was out there waiting for him to show up. And as soon as I saw him walk in, you know, I got my dobro out and I started over that direction, and he came at me with his guitar. What'd you guys play? Uh Evelina. a song of his that he'd written I think that's what we played but he handed me his guitar his dobro that which was the holy grail oh, to me man. it was like Earl Scruggs handing his banjo to a kid yeah you know well, it's like when he, Monroe handed he his played mine Ricky, right? yeah. yes yeah. it was that thing that those guys would do and I learned right then if I ever get a chance to do that I'm gonna do it if anybody wants to play my guitar I'm gonna let them play it did you do who has Josh's Dobro now? Hit, uh, one of them is in the Bluegrass Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. I think they're both in there. They're, he has two guitars, Cliff and Julie. Julie was the one that he cut most of the early Flat and Scruggs with, uh, stuff with. And then uh, Cliff Carlisle gave him his Dobro, gave Josh his Dobro, and that was Cliff. And I've played Cliff a lot, right. uh, even taking it out on the road and played it. You know, the family would let me take it out and play it. That's got to be meaningful for you, man. Oh, yeah, man. That's the that's the guitar that turned made me. You know, yeah. that's the guitar that made me want to play music. So is that the Earls of Leicester? Is the Earls of Leicester coming around to this? Like, is, is it the full circle coming back to the music that made you who you are? It is. It is. It's it was I searched for I've kept my ears and eyes open for years now for the guys who could do this, you know. If I was gonna, I couldn't. I played with Earl and I played with Lester, you know, without joining his band. Played with him, but was in the in the band with Earl and ride down the highway and get him to open up and start telling stories. Oh wow! And then he'd just go until everybody crashed. Yeah, but. Yeah, the the Earls of Leicester was a band that I wanted to do forever, but just wasn't in a position to do until, you know, had a break from from Allison for a summer and wondering what to do. And I thought, well, now's the time to do this. So I got I got a hold of first, you know, first first guy I was thought of was Dell to be the lead singer. But then then I thought, no. You know, that's that's Del McCurry. And it's a different voice than Lester Flatt's voice. Yeah. Yeah. And and Tim O'Brien was the was the tenor singer and he did great. But what what I didn't know was he was about to go on a reunion tour with the Hot Rise, so that wasn't gonna work either, even though we made the first record. But Johnny and Charlie Cushman uh, were automatics. 
I mean, those guys, they are they are Earl Scruggs and Paul Warren. You had to hire a guy to be Earl Scruggs, man. Like and Definitely. That's that's that's, that's, that's the hardest and I knew, game I could imagine. I didn't know anybody that played Earl Scruggs like Charlie Cushman. Yeah. He knew everything. I mean, he followed him around as a kid, you know, and just like to the point where he followed he, – he said he followed Lester Flatt down a, a high school hall one time. Uh, just kind of watching him and hiding out, and and this the the floors were all polished. You know, the guy had been through with the floor polisher and everything, and the school's all nice and clean. But Lester was walking around in the hallways, and he, smoking a Doral. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, and, and he got done with it. And he just dropped it on the floor <laughs> and, and put it out with his foot. And Charlie has that cigarette. No way. Charlie has That's it. Charlie so picked cool. it up when he walked away and put it in a box and took it home. I think that means he can clone him. I think he could. I think he could take the DNA. He could he, take he, the he, DNA and he, make a brand new Lester <laughs> Flat, and it looks just like Sean Camp. Yeah. <laughs> but I had I had the whole band. You know, Barry Bales was the bass player. Had the whole band. It figured out. But I was having trouble with the lead singer thing, Lester thing. And my wife said, "Have you thought about Sean Camp?" And I, I said, "No." I had not thought about Sean. I just Camp. knew him as a songwriter, right? I didn't yeah, know, yeah, I played on his record, you know, that didn't come out in, for fifteen years mm-hmm. or twenty years or whatever. But uh, you know, really respected him as a great songwriter and uh, singer, but didn't know if he was old enough to be to have that much flattened Scruggs in his in his veins. But he did. Uh, I called him up on the phone. I said, you want to come over? We're going to have a rehearsal tomorrow night. Can you come over? And he's, he showed up with a hat, the tie, the suit. He was Lester. Does he play with a flat pick or a thumb pick? He plays with a flat pick. He tried. He tried the, fl- he tried the thumb pick and the finger pick. He just couldn't make it work. I've only ever seen Chris Sharp pull it off. That's and he thing. pulls it off. Yeah, he's a great. He's he's the Lester rhythm player, you know. Dun, dun, you know, there was not all this. You know, it's like, dun, dun, that was it. And that's all he had to say. Signed his name, Lester Flat. But Sean showed up, and the first trio we sang was like, oh, God, we got to do this. This is this is done. Okay, this part's done. In my head, I'm red lights are flashing, and I thought, well, we need to record. And I looked at my schedule, and with Allison, it was like, there is no time, and we have to record this within 100 days. So I just signed a new contract with Rounder Concord to do to do a record of duets, kind of like I was going. I'm going to write with people and. Uh, Jason, Isbell, Roseanne, a whole bunch of people, and then we're going to cut them, going to cut the songs while they're fresh before the innocence falls away. And so that was the idea. I pitched around her, and they signed me up for that. And then I said, well, there's these two other things I want to do first. There's, I have this record that I did with, with Rob Ikes and, and uh, Mike Aldridge that's finished, and it, it's virtually free. And uh, then there's this band, and I, I hadn't come up with the name yet, but it just hit me one day. I was I was coming I was coming home from London, flying home from London, and early in the morning getting a ride into Heathrow, and I passed Lester, and I went, 
bong, you know, there, there's Lester, the Earls of Lester. That's it. Does everyone get it when people introduce no. it? Do they ever say that Leicester? Leicester. Yeah, right. I, right. Rolling Stone. Leicester. No. And I went, no, it's pronounced Lester. It's a play on, it's a play and, on the, and everybody goes, you yeah. know, it's like, and, and uh, it makes total sense. But I, I made, uh, you know, when we started doing gigs, I would go up to the, to the announcer, the MC, and go, it's the Earls of Leicester. And they would go, <laughs> oh, oh, that it, makes sense. Yeah. yeah. yeah so yeah, it ties yeah. the whole thing together. But for me, it, yeah, it did bring me full circle to where I played only Josh Graves Dobro and didn't go out, tried my hardest not to go out of character, uh, not playing wise. But my MC work was just out the totally new i mean sean would stay lester and i would turn into some like future announcer yeah you know like <laughs> till the end of the world rolls around was a song about space travel yeah <laughs> <laughs> till the end of the world rolls around i'll keep on loving you as long as the sun goes up and come down and the big blue sky comes down to the ground long as the world goes round and around i'll keep on loving you you know, and, and what's good for you should be all right for me became a, like I I introduce it as a as a something that marriage counselors have been using, you know, to, to bring keep couples together. Yeah. You know, it, it's just weird. This all sounds to me like smoking a joint with John Harford in the parking lot. Man. It's all that. Yeah, it's man. all totally yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. but but without any of that, you know, yeah. I quit that stuff law. You know, years ago, mm-hmm. quit everything at the same time. Mm-hmm. And my brain, the brain fog started to clear. And that's when I started thinking about things like <laughs> putting the bands together. Right. How are you feeling about the future of this music? I think it's in great hands. Man, I've heard so many good bands here just in the last two days that, you know, people used to say, you know, when the old fellows are gone, it's going to be, it's, it, the music's going to go away with it. Man, yet there couldn't be anything farther from the truth, you know? And it, it doesn't even have to be fall into the banjo, mandolin, bass, guitar thing, fiddle. It doesn't have to be that. It's alive. It's coursing through the veins of all of these new experimental bands. I mean, Leftover Salmon's a bluegrass band. I mean, but there are bands that are hardcore bluegrass, man. And, and I mean, the Dayton, Ohio kind of bluegrass, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the generation away people who took it even more seriously than the, than the first timers did. Mm. So I, I mean, they were fighting to keep that music alive. It's fast though. I mean, th- that's fast. one thing I've been thinking about when I've been listening to the Earls of Leicester and don't get me wrong. I mean, this is a compliment is that that's fast music you guys are playing, but man, I see some bands now and it's fast. I mean, you want go see Ricky's band play and it's so fast. I mean, I think it's too fast yeah. because I, I, I can't, I think it's all, it's all just like, it's, 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 uh, it's athletics. Yeah. More than, I don't get the substance when everything gets so fast. If, if it's too fast for me to, to pull any uh, emotion out of it, it's too fast. And it doesn't have to be. I, in my opinion, and this is just me, the greatest live performance of bluegrass I've seen is you, Tony, Bela, Sam, 
think Mark Schatz mm-hmm. and Mark O'Connor mm-hmm. doing Freeborn Man at Merle Fest. Yeah. It's a YouTube video that has... It's a rolling stone, man. Man, oh man. And I talked to I talked to Bale about that recently. And he, he knew exactly what I was talking about. I could sing you, I could sing you right now Mark O'Connor's <laughs> fiddle solo in that tune, man. <laughs> Mark I could, would love to hear that. Yeah. I hope he comes back to Bluegrass, too. Yeah, you know, he's come back. He's, he's got a family band, and he's kind of come back that far. Uh, we'll see. I mean, Mark was never a bluegrass fiddler. He's a Texas guy, right? He's a, he was a contest fiddler. Yeah. And and then he got in the Dixie Dregs and Stephen Grappelli and Grisman, and, you know, it's all of that ahead of bluegrass. I mean, he's from Seattle, Washington. Yeah. About as removed as you can get. Yeah. But probably the best musician I've ever hit a note with. Is that so? It, yes. Wow. Yes. But there was something about that. That wasn't fast music. That was, no. it was, it was quick. But man, oh man, there's a soul there, you know? And mm-hmm. I think about Earl playing Cripple Creek. Mm-hmm. He's playing the words to the song Cripple Creek. Yeah. He crapple, you know? That's my, my buddy Chris Quinn is a great banjo player in Toronto. And he has a theory that the reason that Northerners have a hard time playing Earl Scruggs is because they don't have Earl's accent. <laughs> to me, it's Cripple Creek. Uh-huh. To Earl, it was Cripple Creek. So yeah. he, he would bend on the note a little bit more. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, the, he, he, he had his own language. And, you know, he, he came from a, uh, he loved ragtime music, which really plays. If you can hear ragtime, all those songs like Bugle Call Rag and all those kind of things, those are those are ragtime tunes. Yeah, even Salty Dog in some ways. Standing on the corner with a low-down blues, a great big hole in the bottom of my shoes. Honey, let me be your Salty Dog. Let me be your solid dog, or I won't be your man at all. Honey, let me be your solid dog. I finally figured out what a salty dog is. Do I got to turn the thing on? <laughs> no, no, this is true. This is true. If, 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 you, if your best dog, the only thing they had to combat fleas and ticks and all that kind of stuff was salt. So you would, your best hunting dog, you would salt him. No way. Your I'll be your best dog. dog. I'll be I'll, your best, but your most loyal. And that goes into like, I'll be your best, I'm your man. Yeah. The only one you can trust. Yeah. The best, the one you can, the one that's going to pay off. For I'm you. your salty dog. Yeah. Oh, Jerry, isn't that cool? <laughs> I, that's, that's, that's been the coolest thing about this is just learning what a, this is all very, very cool music. Oh, you're just wondering what the hell that meant. And then just, you know, this, this year. I found out what a salty dog was, and I, it, it was one of my guys in my band went out and researched it. A salty dog. <laughs> a salty dog. I was I was kind of curious about that kind of bluegrass, straight up bluegrass side of your career, mm. but, but I got to ask you for one story. What was playing with Ray Charles like? I mean, I <clears throat> I was so surprised, but but that first that first one came through Ricky. Ricky was doing a song with him, Friendship. On you know, they were both on CBS. And he was doing, Ray was doing a record with a whole bunch of different people. He'd come in and he picked Ricky to do the song Friendship. Friendship, friendship, just a perfect little blendship. When other friendships have been forgotten, ours will still be great. And I get there and the room was, we did it, everybody down, going, went down at once. There's 12 people in there. But I get this seat, this magic seat, where I'm sitting right next to Ray and Pig Robbins, two blind piano players. Neither one of them have headphones on. 
and there's a drummer in the booth right off from them, so they can kind of hear the drummer, but they don't really need it. They're in sync. But I'm sitting there watching them, and I have the solo in the song, and Ray Charles didn't know any, he didn't know I was even there. He didn't hear anything but pianos and, you know, maybe the drums. And, and he sang the song. We went in to uh, listen back, and we got to the Dobro solo, and he got halfway through, and he stopped the tape, and he said, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> and they said, oh, that's a Dobro, Ray. And he said, oh, what's that? <laughs> and then he did, the, he did the thing with me where he, he would shake hands, and he would go, like this. Squeeze your wrist. He would go like to arm. find out what what size person you were. He really did that with women. To see what see what they looked like. See, see what they, they looked like. Yeah, yeah, right. Wow. And and uh, that was the most amazing thing to me. But you know, there the record comes out and there's the solo, you know, and, and it's like Ray Charles. Yeah. I thought, okay, this is good. But then I'm moving out, I got a divorce. And the only thing in the house is a telephone, and it's sitting in the floor in the dining room. And it rang. I picked it up, and it's Ray Charles. On the phone. On the phone. I'm thinking, why is he calling me? Jerry, would you come down and play on a couple songs? I mean, we, I'm only here in town for a day. Can you come down? Do you have any free time? Can you come down? I'm just doing the final walkthrough of my empty house. Hell, yeah, I got time. So... I said, sure, I'll be down there. I'll be down there in about an hour. He said, great. You know, so I hung up the phone, and then I jerked the phone cord out of the wall, so that would be it for that house. The last I mean, thing you heard in that house was The last thing I heard in that house was Rory Charles talking to me. Man, it's been nice to talk to you. Thanks. We'll do it again. Uh, absolutely. I'll see you tonight. Thanks, thanks for making the time, man. My, pr- my, my pressure. <laughs> <laughs> And there you have it. There's my conversation with uh, with Jerry Douglas. It was very cool to talk to him. Thanks so much to the IBMA for having us there. I ended up going to see Jerry later that night. And it was a bit of a dream weekend hearing uh, Jerry play and hearing all those great bands play. And just thanks a lot to IBMA. And that is it for season one of Toy Heart. Uh, I'll have information on season two. But in the meantime, keep your eyes peeled to the bluegrasssituation.com or to our Instagram at Toy Heart Podcast uh, for information on when you're going to be able to hear season two. And yeah, that's kind of it. I want to give a shout out to my partner, in this podcast, Stephanie Coleman. She came on just as most of the interviews were already recorded, except for Jerry. Um, She's an incredible producer, has a really fantastic ear. Her encouragement, her generosity, her warmth, her rigor have really made this podcast what it is. Uh, All that to say, if this sounds in any way good, it's largely her fault. So thank you to Steph. Our executive producer is Amy Wrightnauer Jacobs, who I also owe such a debt of gratitude to. I pitched her on this idea of doing long form interviews with bluegrass musicians, and she was all about it. And to have the support of her and the whole bluegrasssituation.com crowd um, really means the world. Uh, Thanks to the entire BGS team, Chris Jacobs, Justin Hiltner, Craig Shelburne, and all the amazing writers and contributors that make, and I mean this, BGS, the best source for roots culture redefined 
Go to thebluegrasssituation.com to learn more. The show is mixed by Mike Laval and Stephanie Coleman. Transcription by Rob McLaren. Our theme song, Toy Heart, by Bill Monroe and his Bluegrass Boys, performed by Kristen Andreasen and Chris Critter Eldridge. Kristen is not just an amazing songwriter, and Critter is not just an amazing guitar player and singer, but uh, they welcomed me into their house and let me take over their spare room to do the majority of these interviews. So thanks a lot to them. And go check out their music. It's uh, spectacular. Again, keep your eyes peeled to the Bluegrass Situation at our Instagram, at Toy Heart Podcast. If you like the podcast and you want to tell some friends about it who are into bluegrass music, the episodes are not going anywhere, so make sure to do that. And we'll see you soon for season two. Later on. Darling, you toyed with a toy heart. I think I played your game right from the start. This toy heart was broken when parting words were spoken. Darling, you toyed with a toy heart.